it's a lot to put on an age grouper or a, a new triathlete to say, hey, I don't know the path. I don't, I don't know where to go. If you don't know triathlon and you don't know training, and you don't know physiology, I think it's really challenging to make the right calls. It's not to say that it's impossible because you can still make big gains. Like I said in the last episode, my first two years, I didn't know anything and I made rapid, rapid progress just by doing triathlon. Yeah. And I say that to people all the time. I say, look, step one, train more. That's it. All right, so episode two with Justin Metzler. Justin, thanks for joining again. Thanks for having me back on. So last episode, we were talking a little bit about um, your background in triathlon and your rise to Ironman and what's uh, a little bit of what's to come. You shared, and and I'd I'd like to kind of dig in a little bit because it sounds like you're pretty knowledgeable even with your degree around the physiology of of athletics like like Ironman. Sure. Love to dig into that and understand what you do for nutrition and training and rest. I mean, as a first-time Ironman hopeful, I'm about 90 days out. I think it was 90 days a couple of days ago, so we're about 80, call it 85. Mm-hmm. And we talked a little bit in the last episode about tapering. And so I don't know, because I'm self-supported right now, what mm-hmm. my taper should look like. But let's say it's two weeks. Really, I only have, what, six weeks left right. or, or yeah, six or seven weeks left to really train. Yeah. So let's dig into that a little bit. I mean, you know, what's uh, what's been your experience physiologically? And, and um, you know, we don't have to be super technical, but I feel like you've probably gone through a lot of the pains of overtraining or undertraining sure. and all that. Yeah, I mean, I think I can speak to it from two camps that I have first-hand account of, um, that being myself and then my girlfriend, Jeannie simply because we are complete polar opposites when it comes to physiology. So I'm a super aerobic diesel engine. I can handle massive amounts of work. Um, I can go out there and sort of my bread and butter session is like a six hour ride, 60 minute run off the bike. Like I can do that, you know, hands tied behind my back, no problem. Okay. Um, And Jeannie is a very anaerobic athlete. So she's someone who can do a max out 50 yard sprint in the pool and that's no problem for her. Whereas me, I struggle with that sort of high top end sort of sprint um, work there. So generally what I've seen with other anaerobic athletes like Jeannie is you can, they respond very well to rest. So Jeannie won't even train the day before a race, um, which for me, that totally would not work. And so an anaerobic athlete generally tends to you know respond well to that rest and their taper can be a little bit longer so if you're preparing for a big race let's call it eight weeks out you've got eight weeks to go yeah six weeks until the race i think that's your big training there obviously the specifics of that are going to be dependent on your needs and what your weaknesses are right those are irrelevant whether you're aerobic or anaerobic that's just based on if you you know what your other factors are whether it's you're a strong biker or a weak runner or whatever it may be and um if you're an aerobic athlete, the tendency that you see with those type of athletes is they need a little bit more work in the sort of last two weeks of the race. So it's not necessarily a matter of Jeannie and I having completely different amounts of volume or amounts of intensity. It's more about the redistribution of that intensity. So an aerobic athlete might need a little bit more of that intensity closer to the race 
and uh, and an anaerobic athlete might need it, you know, in the uh, so let's say six weeks beforehand. And so for me, I mean, I've thought about getting a coach because there's just so much that I don't know. Mm -hmm. And, you know, not only is there the obvious benefits of people keeping you honest and, you know, following your training log and being able to read into like consistencies and inconsistencies and saying, oh, you know, you're complaining about, you know, a IT band issue. You've been saying that for four weeks, like we need to do X, Y, and Z. But that said, like, um, what's, uh. I mean, what's been your what's been your approach to evaluating weaknesses and adjusting your training accordingly, aside from the coach and their knowledge of what you need to do? Yeah, you know, it, it's hard because, like I said in the last episode, I hired a coach pretty early on um, when I started doing triathlon, and I found that to be the number one thing that helped me progress at a, a, an incredibly rapid rate was just hiring someone. For me, I've always been super self-motivated, so it wasn't necessarily the accountability. It was just someone who had the knowledge to periodize training. Mm -hmm. And as I studied in school, that sort of correlated with me hiring that coach and us sort of working together. And I've always sort of been a person who has said, okay, look, here are my limiters. Here's what I'm not good at. Let's tackle these head on. And so when you hire a coach, you, you go to them and you say, hey, look, here's what I think I need to work on. They're going to say, yep, yes, no, whatever. Here's the things we can tackle now. Typically you can handle four or five things at one time that you're working on. So that might be, okay, I don't have enough run durability. So I need to work on running off the bike or I need to work on strength in the gym or I'm a couple pounds overweight. I need to work on my nutrition and getting my body composition better. Um, And you can pick these five things and work on them simultaneously. But to an athlete, doing that on their own, it's overwhelming. So I can sit here with my list and say, here are the five things I'm bad at. That can be pretty discouraging saying, I have these five things. I don't necessarily know the route to take. To yeah, go there. 100%. So I think for the athletes that I coach, it's in the initial stages in an early, it's a, it's a dialogue. And that's how it works with me and my coaches. We have a discussion. I'm typically prepared going into those conversations. I ask my athletes to be prepared to go going into those conversations saying, hey, look, what do we think we need to work on here? And then it's the coach's job to figure out that route or that path. Mm -hmm. It's a lot to put on an age grouper or a a new triathlete to say, hey, I don't know the path. I don't don't know where to go. If you don't know triathlon and you don't know training and you don't know physiology, I think it's really challenging to make the right calls. It's not to say that it's impossible because you can still make big gains. Like I said in the last episode, my first two years, I didn't know anything and I made rapid rapid progress just by doing triathlon yeah and i say that to people all the time i say look step one train more that's it you do swim bike run you're gonna get better at swim biking run Mm -hmm. just like anything if you want to write and you want to be better at writing if you write a bunch you're gonna get better at that right you know if you want to do anything in life that's just how it works just practice makes perfect um but having a helping hand is it takes it it makes the learning process so much faster. Yeah, unfortunately for age groupers like myself who, you know, are not yet, have not taken the leap into getting a coach yet, there are some good tools out there. Sure. And I mean, I don't know what you use, but I'm a big Strava guy. It keeps me honest. I can yep. flip through my week and say, oh shit, I only ran like 10 miles combined last week. Like, I need to up the game oh, there. For sure. And then, you know, the swimming is tough. Like, I don't have a waterproof watch right now, which I need to get mm-hmm. so that I can start tracking those. But I can at least track my time and for sure. and strokes in the pool. But yep. what are you using that seems to work for you aside from, uh, albeit all your coaches' uh, help? 
Yeah. Um, so I'm very fortunate in the fact that I live in Boulder, Colorado, which is sort of the epicenter for triathlon. It's the Mecca. Big time. Yeah. So here I'm very fortunate to have training groups and training partners and I don't use any watches in the pool or anything like oh, that. Oh, cool. All right. Um, I just use the pace clock. Yeah. Uh, and I just look at my times and uh, usually, I mean, I my number one suggestion is if you live in a place that has a master swim group, get in with them immediately. Okay. Swimming with people is the number one thing that is going to help you progress in swimming. And that's all pool stuff? Pool. Open water is great too. Um, I think the foundations of swimming should be done in the pool because open water, it's number one for people who don't have a swim background, swim proprioception or the way that you feel your body in the water is very difficult. Okay. Um, so the open water adds a whole other element to that. You don't have a black line to see where you're going. That's the right. water's murky. You don't know what's up. There might be sharks down there. You don't know what it is. <laughs> There's some alligator in the lake. Those are all anxieties and pressures that if you're an early onset swimmer, let's eliminate those at the start. Right. Let's get to the pool. Let's get familiar with swimming with around other people. Let's get a coach on deck to watch your stroke, maybe give you a little bit of feedback. Let's get some intensity in there with maybe a couple workouts that the coach is going to give. Um, and then you can progress into the open water. So I think I think swimming with people or just finding at least one training partner, a guy, a guy or a girl that can help you sort of just look at your stroke or be there or you know make you accountable to get to the pool. That's that's my number one tip for swimming. Yeah, the swimming. I mean, and the the few folks that I've talked to, they've all said the anxiety and, and a lot of podcasts that I listen to about first time mm-hmm. Ironman, they say the swim is one of their most um, anxiety inducing parts of it. Yeah, and for me. Until I really started swimming open water regularly, I didn't think I overlooked that. Mm-hmm. But then you get in the water and you put your face in dark water and your heart rate yep. accelerates and you feel cold spots. Totally. And you don't know where the buoy is and all of a sudden it's like, oh Jesus, like this is this is like right. scary stuff. It's enough to make you want to quit. Oh, 100%. And I have a, a just a pro friend of mine at, at Ironman Boulder. You know, he had a panic attack in the in the swim, and so those pressures and anxieties don't change for pros either. Right. Those things still are around, but. One thing you can do is be more familiar and aware of those things. So I think, like I said, there's a stepping stone to open water swim race. I'm going to do a triathlon in the open water. Start in the pool, progress to the open water, get familiar with swimming around people. I think that's another thing people forget when it comes to triathlon. You're going to get into the water with maybe 100 other people right around you. you And that alone... Um, forget about the, you know, cold water or, you know, the fish that you're going to touch with your hand or whatever, just swimming with people, you know, left, right, and center, that's anxiety inducing enough. So, so do you have the opportunity to just wait in the back and get in late? I mean, obviously if you're trying to place, probably not, but yeah, I think if you're, if you know, the swim is going to give you some anxiety and you're not necessarily worried about time, your goal is to just finish this thing. I would say just wait, try and get some clear water. Or even if that means swimming 100 meters off to the side and getting some clear space, even if you have to swim a little bit more to yeah. not have a panic attack, the, the, the last thing you want to do is you know, freak out in the water and and not have not be able to finish. Yeah, and have to wave the flag. Right. You, don't yeah. want to, you, don't, you do not want to be in that situation. So if it means getting some clear space or if you're in a group stopping or doing a couple strokes backstroke to just get some clear water and just sort of regroup, I think that's a good thing. The, the thing people also have to realize is the fact that the swim is such a small component of an iron, a full Ironman. Right. Um, that was one thing that I l- overlooked in my Ironman Boulder experience. I had put a lot of pressure on myself to be at the front of the swim, which 
I've worked on my swim for 10 years to get to the point where I can swim at the front of the race. Um, I didn't start there. I started way back. Like I was the guy who needed to wait for everyone to go or pull off to the side just so I could, you know, be alone um, and and just get through the swim. Um, but still, I mean, you need a you need to make sure you you get through that swim. And there's so much time to be made on on the bike and run. I mean, you still have a marathon to run. Yeah, no kidding. And you've been first out of the water in lots of races, right? Like the ones that I watched of you in China, you were first out in what what was it? it starts with a Q. Oh, Shuxing. Yeah, Shuxing. Yeah. So yeah. you were fast out of the water and then mm-hmm. fast on the bike and held a pretty good pace. So yeah. Was that uh, I mean, was that was that the strategy that you wanted going into it, for example? You know, my seventy point three racing tactics have developed and evolved so much over the four years or five years I've been a pro, the four years I've been working with my coach Jesse. Uh, in the beginning I was a third pack swimmer. So the way the pros work is you pretty much have somewhere between three and four packs. In the swim you can be right next to someone, you can draft off them. There's right. no rule against that. So you've got the super elite top tier swimmers at the front in pack one. You've got the sort of solid but not top elite in pack two. Pack three is sort of the guys coming from behind who are typically strong bike runners. And then pack four is the people who really don't come from a swim background. Those people are like... They're hanging on by a thread. Yeah, like there's a, <laughs> there's a pro cyclist who just started racing pro triathlon. He's way back there because he just has never swam. He's 30 years old. He just started doing Ironman triathlon, so he okay. just doesn't know. Um, I started in that third pack, so I wasn't the worst, but I wasn't anywhere close to the front, losing four or five minutes. And when I started with Jesse, we said, hey, in order to win these races, obviously our goal is to win races, you've got to be able to swim at the front. So it's been a three-year project for me working on my swimming, swimming pretty much twenty-five to 30,000 yards a week. Wow. Every week for three years. So how many bra- how many sessions is that broken down? Uh, five to six. Yeah, five to six sessions a week. 28 to 3,000 sometimes in a, at a time. Uh, yeah, I mean, we'll swim five, 6,000, 7,000 yards wow. in, a, in, a, in one session. Um, somewhere between, an, I mean, a standard workout, like if I'm not going and doing an easy recovery swim, I mean, we're swimming between an hour and a half. Yeah, an hour and a half, an hour 45 minutes. And so you're saying that when you're in pack three, you know, and you're coming out of the water, say five minutes behind the the first person out of the water, yeah. how likely is it in a 70.3 that you're going to bridge that gap? Unlikely. It's very unlikely. Especially, so typically what happens is these packs form in the swim and then you get out onto the bikes and you're not able, you're not allowed to draft in the, on the bike portion. Right. You have to stay 12 meters as a pro. But what happens is all of us train so hard, we're all at such a high level that it's very difficult for anyone from any of those packs to break away or bridge. There's obviously a couple guys in each pack who can go off the front or bridge from pack three to pack one or whatever, but the majority of the group sort of stay together and then you end up working together almost like an echelon in a legal sort of fashion. Okay. Um, So if you're in pack one, you're in a huge advantage because there's four or five other guys at equal cycling ability level. If you guys are... If there's one guy who's real strong at the front or you guys are working together, the strong cyclists from pack three aren't coming up. And if you get off the bike with a little bit of gap on even the strong riders in the back, it's hard for them to make up that four or five minutes from the swim. Right. So the swimmings, especially in 70.3, I, I wouldn't say it's the same for Ironman, but for 70.3, the swim is absolutely critical. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm, I'm anxious about the swim. I mean, 2.4 miles in choppy water and... Well, it, inherently it is choppy in Maryland. It's in the mm-hmm. Chop Tank River, and evidently in years past they've canceled it. Sure. So I'm hoping that you know conditions are great and we're able to do all three. But 
we'll just have to see. But I'm right. pretty anxious about that. And then getting out of the water, I think it'll take me a little while to settle into the bike. But like, I grew up playing ice hockey, so like I got worse workhorse legs. I think the bike will be my best sport. Sure. And then it's all about nutrition. So like, yep. what's your experience with nutrition on the bike? What works for you, and what to yeah. look out for? I think everyone talks about calories. They say, I need this many calories. And I think that's fine. Yes, you do need calories on the bike. One thing I think people overlook is fluid intake and salt. Those, at the end of the day, you need sugar, salt, and water. Mm. That's what helps you do well at endurance sports. So I think figuring out what your sweat rate is is gonna help you figure out what your intake needs are. You don't need to go to a lab and do a special $500 sweat test. I think you can have a pretty good indication of how much salt you lose in your sweat by just looking at yourself after a hot day yeah. on your bike jersey. If you're covered in salt or if you're a super heavy sweater and you're constantly dehydrated, if you go out for a ride and you lose 10 pounds when you come back, you might want to you know, think about having a plan or a strategy to intake a lot of fluid. In the or, emergency bag at the very least. Exactly, yeah. So um, thankfully, if you're doing an Ironman race or a lot of these triathlons, they have aid stations on the bike. And I would say, number one, start drinking early, start drinking often. Be on top of your salt needs, whatever they may be. If you're a high salt loser, make sure you're supplementing with salt. If you're a low, um, a low salt person, you're still going to need. So having some sort of sports drink... Um, that you can intake that has salt, sugar, and fluid. That's okay. that's number one step. So um, Ironman has products on course that are just fine. I like to start with uh, First Endurance EFS on my bike. I find that to have a really high salt content. Um, so that's early on. Yeah, so my bike for an Ironman race will have three bottles of that EFS on the frame. Okay. Um, or you know various places on the bike yeah and then um, i'll have another two in my special needs bag if you're someone who is a super high sweater i would say put four bottles on your bike have another four bottles sitting in your special needs bag and make sure that you've got eight bottles of your preferred sports drink so you're not relying on the course on course nutrition um that you don't use every day right so that was something especially for Ironman boulder it was incredibly hot i drank 14 bottles of drink on the bike um just to you know deal with my and I'm not a super high sweat rate guy I'm not a super high salt guy either I'm sort of average across the board but I still needed that much to intake and I wish I would have had four bottles on my bike of my preferred sports drink plus another four of my preferred in my special needs yeah and it's tough uh, also I mean the nature of what I'm going to be doing I'm training at altitude in one of the drier areas of the country and yep. then I'm going to sea level right on the bay in one of the most humid environments probably yeah, that there are sure. out there. I mean, you know, I'm not racing in Mexico or yeah. Florida, but it's it's going to be humid. Oh, very humid there, yeah. So the so that brings up a whole other bag of worms in terms of how do I how do I work on trying to figure out those levels and then adjusting it with the humidity and the climate that's going to be out there. Yeah, I think I would say more is better. Uh, a rule that my coach and I like to use is pee twice on the bike in an Ironman. So you get on the bike out of the swim, chances are you're going to be dehydrated from that swim. Yeah. You know, you're going to be in there somewhere between an hour and two and a half hours, depending on who you are. Yeah. You're going to be dehydrated no matter who you are after swimming 2.4 miles. So I would just say, get on the bike and start drinking and just mm. drink, drink, drink until you pee once. And then you know, you're in a good spot and then just keep drinking until you pee again. That's generally a good rule of thumb for anybody, no matter your sweat rate. So if it takes you 15 bottles to pee once, 
that's what it may be. If it takes you three, then that's what it is also. Yeah. So, so what are you wearing on the bike, or what do you what what type of gear do you guys do you use when sure. you're racing? Yeah. So I'm fortunate to be sponsored by Trek Bicycles. Um, so yeah, we ride the Trek Speed Concepts uh, with Shimano kitted out wheels and um, components. And uh, yeah, I mentioned First Endurance products. They take care of our, our nutrition. Um, and then our, our title sponsor is Timex Watches. So we're always wearing our Timex watch to make sure we're on, on pace and you know where we need to be in terms, yeah. of, in terms of splits and stuff. Um, and then the tri-suit, you're in a tri-suit. Yes, Costelli makes all of our apparel. Um, and they make a sleeved tri-suit that has been tested in the wind tunnel to be a little bit faster than a non-sleeve. Um, hmm. it, it comes down like to the elbow on, yeah. on the arm. Um, do you find so, that being out for all those hours, the sleeves are better? Because I've not yet gotten a tri suit. I'm racing and I'm I'm, yeah. I'm training in my bike kit and then mm-hmm. running in whatever. Yeah, and you know, I would say depending on your goals, I would go with what's most comfortable. As a pro, speed is the name of the game, so yeah. I'm gonna wear a tri suit the whole way through. But if you're more comfortable getting out of the swim, putting on a bike kit, I mean, you're gonna be out there for 112 miles, and then you got to run a marathon. If you're chafing all over the place it's not going to make for a really fun day. Right. So I would just say for someone getting into it, you know, in the early days when I was doing sprint triathlons, my goal was to just finish it and feel good. So I would change into a bike kit and then I'd change into a run kit. And my goal was to just feel good in all three sports. I wasn't going to put on something that I didn't, wasn't going to feel comfortable with, but ultimately speed was important to me. And I ended up getting a tri suit and I think Castelli makes the best on the market. I have all my athletes wear the, wear their stuff. So yeah, I think it's the fastest and most comfortable. How many athletes are you coaching? I try to keep it around five. Um, it For me, triathlon, racing triathlon is my number one priority, but I do love coaching and I like to, I see myself in the future when I'm done racing triathlon, that being my, um, my next passion is yeah. coaching athletes. So I try to keep it to five because the way I work with my athletes is it's not a training plan. It's not, here's your training, let's not talk for a month. I don't have tiers in terms of how much we can communicate. A lot of coaches say, hey, look, if you want to do the gold tier, we can have three texts a month and two phone calls or whatever. I say, I'm, I don't do that. I try to really coach these people. I try to be a part of their journey and say, hey, look, we can communicate as much as you need. If you've got questions about equipment, you've got questions about nutrition, you don't know how to do a session, you send me an email, you give me a text, you give me a call. There's no limit on that. So I try to keep it to five because even though five may seem like a small number, I really try to be a part of these people's lives. So I try to keep it at that to make sure I'm giving enough attention to those athletes, but also making sure I'm doing my job mm-hmm. as a pro. And what are those guys out there trying to do? Oh, it totally ranges. I've got one guy who's doing a sprint and Olympic distance race, trying to qualify for the world champs as an age grouper. Sweet. Um, I've got one guy who's doing 70.3 in Ironman. I'm training a, 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 a woman for a marathon right now. So it kind of, kind of goes full full spectrum yeah 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 the marathon is the marathon i'm a little worried about i've done a marathon before but it's one of those things that you know i've not i've not gotten off a hundred mile plus ride and thrown the shoes on so yeah when do you think i mean given that i'm about 90 days out when do you Mm -hmm. think i should really be hitting those and what's like the limit for brick workouts that you should responsibly do yeah here's what i would say at least the way my program works and the way Jeannie's program works, we're both coached by Jesse, but this is the way that I train my athletes as well. I think running off the bike is the number one thing to help you with running off the bike. Right. We're not runners. We're not cyclists. We're not swimmers. We're triathletes. It's a different sport to be able to run 
a hard 10K off a 40K bike in an Olympic distance race. It's a different sport to be able to run a half marathon after a 56-mile bike ride. And yeah. same thing for an Ironman. Open marathon running, in my opinion, has very little correlation to running a marathon in an Ironman. I know all these pros here in Boulder are capable of running 220, 215, two, you know, 230 marathons. But you see the pros, you know, they're running 245 to be really fast Ironman right. marathons. So it's a totally different sport. I would suggest running off the bike as much as possible. If that means during the week you're, you can fit in an hour easy ride and a 30-minute run off the bike, do it that way. Instead of running in the morning and riding in the evening. As much off the bike as possible I think is going to set you up to be able to run well in the race. So if I've got an hour, instead of riding an hour on a bike, get off in 40 minutes and put in what you can running-wise. If you have an hour total, I do this all the time because a lot of the athletes that I coach are, you know, they're parents and they're full-time working right. nine to five. That's, it's really hard to juggle time management. Um, but yeah, I think if you're going to sit there and say, hey, look, here's my training program, I always will back off on the riding duration in order to fit a small run in off the bike. Because I think just running off the bike is a totally different thing. And I think you need to practice it a lot to get good at it. Are you wearing uh, like compression wear and stuff like that when you're getting off on tired legs and running? Like, is there a risk, higher risk for injury? Uh, not really on the run. I think for, from a recovery perspective, compression has validity. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think it has a ton of validity in terms of actually when you're out there wearing compression gear. Okay. Um, maybe some sort of compression sock below the ankle because um, your foot is going to swell over the course of an Ironman. So having something a little bit tighter actually around the foot is going to be helpful. But I think the tall, I'm not a big tall socks believer guy. Yeah. I, I think that's all kind of hocus pocus. But occasionally if I've got tight calves or I've got swollen legs from travel, I'll throw on the, the you know compression socks and try and just get some blood flow going there. What do you do for recovery? I mean, yeah. this for me, the next, I mean, July and August are going to be the big the big months, I'm going to be fatigued. My, sure. I'm going to, I'm going to be wanting to take rest when I can't afford to. Yep. So what do you do? What's like your best recommendation for, you know, a five day a week athlete? For sure. Yeah. I, I've got my recovery protocol. That is just my five things that I do every single day. That is sort of baseline. Uh, number one is hydration. I think above all else, staying hydrated, especially at altitude, is so huge. Okay. So making sure you're drinking during your sessions, sports drink with salt, that is enormous. So being in a dehydrated state just totally wrecks your recovery. Yeah. If you're if you're out there on the bike for five hours and you don't replenish that fluid, that you're going to be wrecked for a week. Okay. So fluid intake is huge. If you can do it while you're riding that's the best. If you need to do it post-workout, that's fine. Either way, you're going to need to have some post-workout, no matter what, you're going to be dehydrated, especially if you're running. Um, so just post-workout hydration, number one. Number two is uh, post-workout recovery drink. So having a mixture of carbohydrates and proteins, simple carbohydrates and protein okay. is, is critical. A lot of people are in the camp of, oh, you can have a turkey sandwich and it's the same as a recovery drink and you know, real food's better. But there's nothing like coming home from a training session, getting uh, 30 to 60 grams of car simple carbohydrate, and then between 10 and 20 grams of pr protein, uh, preferably something like whey protein or whey protein isolate. Mm -hmm. Your body absorbs that so rapidly, and you can recover immediately from training by having something like that. Okay. Um, so a product we like to use is Ultrogen, a first endurance product. 
but it's got those things. It's also got added benefits like glutamine, um, other things that help your muscles repair. And so that's number two. Uh, also as a subcategory of that, before I go to bed every night, 20 grams of whey protein. Um, and that just helps your, you are most receptive to muscle protein synthesis in the evening while you're sleeping. Okay. Um, so giving your body that protein to help it repair is huge. Um, number three is sleep. That's, that's just enormous as much sleep as you can get. Obviously for working people, that's the, the toughest thing is time. Yeah. Um, but just trying to prioritize sleep. And even if it's on the low end, if you can only get six or seven hours in, set yourself up to make that six or seven hours as high quality as possible, whether that means a good bed, you know, uh, blackout curtains, you know, you want to make your sleep as high quality as possible. Um, another big thing is if you can afford it, um, or if you can make it happen, Normatec recovery boots. I'm oh yeah. Sure if you've seen those, yep. the inflatable boots, uh, it's kind of a graduated compression system, um, pumps air into your legs and it gets blood flow. Yep. And that's really huge. How often can you do that? I mean, you can do it daily if you want to. Yeah. I do it every day, okay. every night. 40 minutes is my baseline. So I'll do 40 minutes of Normatec every single day, no matter what. Um, if it's an easier day, I might bump that up to 60 minutes. If it's a super chill day, I'll do even two sessions, morning 40 minutes and evening 40 minutes. Denver's got a good um, a good recovery and, and like wellness uh, facility called, I think, Denver Sports Recovery or something yeah. like that. And they have it. It's huge. 100 bucks a month, but you can go in there, you can get massage, you can do STEM, you can sit there in the boots, you can get hot, cold baths, whatever. Yeah, and I think all of those things sort of fall under category number four. Like, I get a massage once a week, I see the chiropractor once a week, Boulder oh, Sports cool. Chiropractic. Right. We have awesome guys here in Boulder who take awesome care of like a lot of pros here. Okay. Um, you know, we I'll get, have to give them a shout. Yeah, we get adjustments and stem, whatever you need. Like, they're, they're the best. Um, and yeah, I mean, just making sure you're yeah, taking care of those little things. Okay. It's huge. Yeah. yeah, I think that that's where I've actually gone wrong is I, I hit a wall every once in a while and it's because yeah. I'm not getting the nutrition right and I'm not getting the some of the recovery and stretching and just, you know, physiology stuff. Right. Yeah, yeah. I think the baseline, like I, I would almost rank those things in order. Like f- drinking during your drinking sports drink and staying on top of your caloric fluid and salt and sugar needs, that is going to set up your recovery to the next level. Okay. There, I think there's a lot of people who say, oh, you know, you can fat adapt by not eating during your training sessions. I think that's such hocus pocus. Okay. I think keeping your body well stocked and well fueled is going to just set you up for consistent training. And it's consistent training over the long term that makes you a better triathlete. It's not banging out one massive session or fat adapting here, trying to go low carb, high fat, all this crap. I think if you're eating high quality, nutrient dense foods outside of training, fueling yourself with those things that I talked about during your training sessions, that's going to set you up for consistency and long-term success. Cool. Yeah. Well, Justin, it's been a real pleasure chatting with you. Um, we'll have to get you on again and maybe get Jeannie on too. And, For sure. Uh, yeah. As I progress um, and you know implement some of the great advice that you shared, um, we'll maybe do a follow-up. I think it would be super cool to kind of see how, how things progress. Really quick before we go, I mean... What do you recommend for somebody who, you know, the reality is like, I want to finish this thing, but it could be that at, you know, mile five of the run, I just want to tap out. I mean, how do you handle those types of scenarios, you know, given the worst case? Yeah, I think before the race, it's really important for people to sit down and figure out why they're doing this, why they're doing triathlon. 
And I think that's a realization that I've come to pretty recently. And I think it's easy for people to say, oh, I want to win my age group or I'm doing this because, you know, I want to some external reason. But you really have to dig deep and say, why am I doing this Ironman? Why am I doing this triathlon? Why am I putting myself out there, you know, waking up early to do the training, making these sacrifices in terms of my you know, life and putting my partner or my spouse in a, in a different situation because I want to do this thing for me. Um, and once you figure out that why it's not going to be hard to push through those challenging moments, it's going to actually be easy because you're going to be able to draw back on that and say, this is why I'm doing this. It's because I want to push myself to my absolute limit or I want to, you know, you know, do this for whatever the, the reason may be. Yeah. It's, it's easy. Once you have that reason to fall back on, when times get tough, um, you can push through. Great advice. Justin Metzler, Timex athlete. Uh, looking forward to chatting again soon, man. Really appreciate yeah, you. Thanks for having time. me on. It was yep. great. Thanks. All right, guys. Uh, take care. This is uh, Tyler Anderson signing off with the Life Short Podcast, My Journey to My First Ironman. So there you have it, Justin Metzler, Rookie of the Year, professional triathlete, first-time Ironman, setting out to do his second Ironman in just a couple of weeks. Hopefully we can get Justin back on after Ironman Canada and uh, talk all about his second Ironman experience and his learnings coming out of that. Uh, Really cool to talk to him. Next episode, we're going to get a coach on and hear from a professional uh, Ironman coach all about uh, their experience in the sport and what they've done for athletes. So really looking forward to that. This is the Life Short Podcast. My name is Tyler Anderson. Thanks for listening and get out there and do something.